So hey, it's Zane Horowitz. It's uh, the end of September, and we have kind of a timely um, Oregon Journal Club this time. We're talking mostly about Kratom, although the official title is the Herbal Ks. We'll talk about Kratom and Kaba and Cat, and a tiny bit about Salvia as well. And the reason this is all in the news um, as of late is, even though we've always known about Kratom a little bit, um, the uh, DA um, announced at the end of August that in 30 days, which they're required to do to get it on the Federal Register, that they would be making Kratom Schedule 1. And the news always jumps on that. It means, you mean just like heroin and LSD, and sometimes they say, and, and marijuana, which is also all true, 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 and true. Um, but um, and then there was an outrage that erupted amongst all the millions of users or thousands of users, whatever they were, um, who have been using this for a variety of purposes, both to get high and to detox and to get off their other opiates that they were using, although correctly stated, there is no evidence that it actually does that. So we're going to look at some of the papers and see what evidence, as slim as it may be, there is. Most of these are review articles and come from other reviews of other papers that are out there. But we're going to start off um, with a little bit about um, the two herbs involved that people often confuse because they're both, quote, natural, although so is opium, um, salvia and kratom. And to tell us a little bit about uh, salvia is our medical student. Hi. Hey. So the first one is from a journal article entitled Opioid Receptors and Legal Highs, Salvia, Divinorum, and Kratom. Uh, divided up in two sections. First half talks about salvia and mostly just a breakdown about what it is, how it works, um, why you should be concerned about it, it's pharmacokinetics, that sort of stuff. And then it does the same for, for kratom. <clears throat> so I'll start with salvia. Um, salvia divinorum is a perennial herb classified as a member of the mint family. Um, street names for the for the drug salvia go by, uh, what they say, is uh, diviner sage, mystic sage, and magic mint. Um, a lot of species of salvia, but salvia divinorum is the one that contains the active ingredient that causes visual hallucinations, uh, euphoria, and analgesia. That's salvinorum A. Uh, the article says that salvinorum is one of the most widely marketed recreational botanicals available via the internet. Um, they say that this is mostly due to the fact that it's often marketed as a legal hallucinogen. Um, you can purchase it online or at head shops uh, in varying, varying concentrations. They say you start with a starter pack and they get progressively uh, more concentrated, um, and it can get extremely potent and effective at these higher dosages. Um, in a recent study of what they say is innovative adolescent drug users, 25% of the surveyed adolescents stated that they had used the internet to obtain information to learn more about salvia divinorum. So they're saying that this is obviously a drug that's increasing in popularity over the years, and especially among uh, adolescents and young adults in particular. Um, Three features they state that make salvia attractive to uh, adolescents and young adults. The first is that the plant material or extracts of salvinorin A may be purchased uh, pretty much anywhere from head shops to record stores, online vendors, and they even say university campus stores can, can sometimes sell salvia. <laughs> um, second reason is that according to a, a drug encyclopedia website, www.arrowid.org, um, it's reported that salvia divinorum does not trigger any positive results on qualitative urine drug screen, which is correct. 
uh, at the time of the study. Um, the third is that uh, adolescent users may be influenced by the availability of anecdotal internet instructions to suggest that um, evidence that salvia is safe, um, which is also true there, but any reported um, uh, overdose events noted. Um, this concern, though, in rising popularity has prompted some legalization to criminalize salvia divinorum. Um, so far, the only states to actually make salvia completely illegal are Delaware, Louisiana, and Missouri. Um, mostly on the West Coast, it's <coughs> completely legal without any restriction, as in you can buy any amount you want at any age, except in California where there is an age restriction. Um, to support the idea that it's, it's increasing popularity, they mostly looked at uh, increasing trends in websites, mostly looking at the traffic, and found that there's over the years, have been an increased number of searches for salvia on these websites. Um, but they also argue that that could be due to just increased internet usage. However, compared to other drugs, this salvia seems to have a greater increase relative to other drugs that people might be looking up on the internet. It suggests that it itself is becoming more popular relative to other drugs. So they also looked at um, number of calls reported between 2000 and 2002, according to the AAPCC and found that that number is steadily rising. From 2002, there was somewhere between 10 and 15 calls. And in 2005, there's close to 35. So significantly rising. Um, the atom component of salvia divinorum is salvinorum A, a psychotropic uh, ditropine that produces hallucinations. However, salvinorum A demonstrates no apparent binding affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor, thus differing sharply from other hallucinogens with related neuropsychiatric effects. Um, Salvinorm A is a highly selective, naturally occurring agonist of the kappa opioid receptor. Um, that receptor exists in both, both the spinal cord and the brain. So stimulation of that receptor produces um, psychotomimesis, a diuresis, and spinal analgesia, but does not result in any respiratory depression. So you're going to get some analgesia, but it's not going to slow down your respiratory rate like something like heroin or other opiates. Um, the mechanism by which the KOR produces hallucinations is unknown, but its role in diseases of perception, including schizophrenia and depression, has been postulated. Um, salvia can be taken in a number of different ways. Uh, you can, salvia and salvinorm A may be administered via buccal or pulmonary routes, and the onset of duration effect varies with the route of administration. Salvinorm A is rapidly absorbed through the buccal mucosa, whether in extract or leaf form, and psychoactive effects can occur within seconds to minutes and persist for up to one hour. Uh, if inhaled, it produces a psychoactive effects within seconds, which can last up to 20 to 30 minutes. Um, the threshold needed to, to cause hallucinations um, is about 200 micrograms, um, while doses of 10 milligrams fail to produce hallucinations after ingestion. In fact, um, there's no reports of psychoactive effects if in ingested at all, suggesting it has a very extensive first-pass metabolism. Um, uh, it's metabolized... Mostly by the liver, they think it turns into salvinorum B um, via ester hydro hydrolysis by blood esterases. Um, uh, let's see. However, it can be rapidly cleared in vivo. After intravenous administration of salvinorum A to four primates, elimination half-life was 56.6 plus or minus 24.8 minutes. Elimination half-life significantly longer in females, suggesting the elimination kinetics may vary with gender. Um, so the hallucination effects caused by salvinorum um, are typically very vivid. Uh, they describe it as mostly synesthetic, so people say they can smell sounds or hear colors. Um, but they're usually short-lived, maximum less than an hour if it's taken buckly. 
Um, the really only toxic side effect to ingesting salvia, salvia is the lack of insight that you get from being high. It could put you in a, a dangerous situation just simply due to lack of insight. Um, particularly if someone was driving a car or, say, decided to jump out a window, as we saw in one case. Um, uh, additionally, there are uh, users have described aversive effects of salvia in arms. Mostly, uh, if taking it, you don't really want to take it again. <laughs> so it seems that that might actually inhibit uh, addiction or chronic use. So, um, to date, no studies have validated a method for detection of salvinorm A or B in human blood after use. So uh, management really depends on detecting the symptoms, um, especially in the emergency rooms where we can't detect it, but we need a, a thorough history and be able to recognize what's going on in patients. Um, symptoms severe enough to require treatment in the emergency department are thought to be uncommon, and the greatest risk may be trauma in the context of complex activities such as driving. To date, no cases of salvia, divinorum, toxicity, or deaths from overdose have been reported. Theoretically, naloxone may reverse the physiological and psychiatric effects of salvinorum A at the kappa opiate receptor, um, which is totally valid. Um, uh, addiction to salvia dinorum has not been described, and this, again, is also postulated to the aversion effect. So that's all that I'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. So salvia, another a plant that's mostly smoked because it really doesn't work by ingesting and often confused with kratom, which we'll talk about mostly today, but salvia itself is really only banned in a handful of states currently. Um, fill in the second half of the article. Uh, tell us a little bit about kratom in your brief summary. Yeah. Uh, so uh, kratom is, is basically a tree native to um, Asia and Africa. Um, and this was originally started by manual laborers in Malaysia that would um, chew this for kind of a euphoric stimulant-like effect, kind of like a coca plant. Um, at higher doses, it's been shown to have opioid-like effects um, and was used to treat pain, um, opioid withdrawal as well. Um, it was actually outlawed or made illegal in Thailand in 1946. Australia in 2005, and like we spoke about, in 30 days, it's going to be a Schedule One here. Um, up until this time, it's been readily available over the Internet. It's really billed as a natural alternative to um, opioids for both pain and for opioid withdrawal. So it was really readily available um, coming in, um, you know, uh, ounces for 10 to $40 um, compared to other alternatives um, to buy opioids or even replacements such as buprenorphine. It's um, uh, extremely cost-effective, um, just the way it was billed. Um, but since it, it really was never on any schedule, there was never um, a whole lot of information in national databases about um, you know, kratom and, you know, people were using it, what the effects were, um, you know, really what the mechanisms of all of these things were. Um, the, the most prevalent um, I guess uh, active metabolite in there is uh, metagrenine, um, which comes kind of from the species name, um, and it's a alkaloid. And you know, it known it's known to basically um, go after kappa and mu receptors, and that's essentially why we get those opioid-like effects at the um, higher doses. Um, you know, this can you know also be put in a tea or brewed or smoked. Um, like we mentioned, it can be chewed. Um, there seems to be more effects when it's chewed. Um, 
and they, they postulate that that comes from there's a presence of other alkaloids in the leaves um, that help you know either absorb or or do something there. Um, it is pretty dose dependent as far as the effects. Um, the effects can come on within five or ten minutes, so it's kind of been one of those you know instant gratification um, type drugs. It can last for up to an hour. Um, you know, as far as effects and toxicity with this particular drug, um, you know, it's been it's been observed at least that we'll hear a, a little bit that it's uh, it can have some um, addiction potential. Um, it can have some withdrawal potential that is uh, very similar to opioid withdrawals, which makes sense since it's going after the immune kappa uh, receptors. Um, but they're really, you know, the effects as far as, you know, an analgesic um, or, you know, just what toxic doses are not studied very well. Um, and there's really not a whole lot of information that we have on that. Um, you know, other than that, that's a... Uh, that's the, the, the gist of Kratom, um, you know, symptoms that you would see um, with it would, you know, as far as uh, withdrawal would be irritability, yawning, um, you know, myalgias, diarrhea, arthralgias, um, sort of the same things that you would see with opioid withdrawal. Yeah, so basically a nice intro to Kratom. Um, it's a plant that's been around for years where it grows the most in Thailand. They had banned it decades and decades ago, but they still have problems with it amongst workers. Um, the big issue is as it's become, quote, a legal high over the years and spread to the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere, it's not just the loose leaf that they chew while they're working. It's usually a more uh, product that's aimed at people who may be addicted or people who want to experiment with drugs. So the question is, is does it have addictive uh, capabilities and do you have a classic physiologic withdrawal phenomenon? So tell us about a case report and a little bit of review of that is our visiting resident, Carrie. Okay, um, so this case report is of a 37-year-old married teacher. She has a past history of um, postpartum depression that was treated with sertraline um, and then discontinued on her own, uh, carpal tunnel surgeries with surgical release and no substance use prior to um, this presentation. So she presented um, to addictions and mental health two years after her starting her uh, kratom use. And so originally she had her carpal tunnel surgery, she had pain afterwards and wanted to avoid opioids addictive potential and a colleague of hers recommended this natural non-addictive substance and so she tried it in capsule form initially and then started buying her own online um, and so it was this concentrated um, dried product that she would dilute and would come in about 20 mils at a time um, and so basically they they go through uh, the DSM-5 criteria for substance abuse and going through her presentation and she has eight out of 11 of them. So over the first six months, um, she was using it regularly and then she realized she was using more than intended. Um, she started having cravings if she didn't use it. Um, if she cut down, she got abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, sweats, blurred vision. Um, and then over the next, um, or over 18 months from her uh, original use, uh, she started to try outpatient detox with this providers, um, I'm assuming primary care providers, um, using clonidine and it was not successful. Uh, it started straining her relationship. 
She was hiding it from her husband. Um, she was uh, using it despite physically she had declining health. She had weight loss, insomnia, low energy. Um, and then at 24 months, she was admitted to the mental health and addiction services. So she was admitted there. I didn't say what time they assessed her, but her last dose was at 5 in the morning. When they saw her, she just had mild diaphoresis. Her pupils were described as 2 to 3 millimeters. Um, they did urine drug screen. It was negative, uh, but it was positive for the my tragedy um, at the cutoff level, level, which is 10 nanograms per millimeter. Otherwise, her blood work was <coughs> remarkable. Um, and so they placed her on the opioid withdrawal, withdrawal protocol for their um, facility. So she had a clonidine 0.1 milligram patch daily. Uh, she was given hydroxyzine 50 milligrams every six hours regularly, and then had clonidine 0.1 to 0.2 every two hours. <coughs> um, by 1 p.m. of the same day, she started getting myalgias, bone pain, abdominal cramps, nausea, blurred vision, and they say rapid pupil dilatation. I'm not sure what, to what extent. Um, and then severe withdrawal symptoms at some time later in the afternoon. And then over the next 36 hours, she required um, two milligrams total of quantity, most of which was in the first uh, 24 hours and then decreased after that. They also started her on venlafaxine uh, for her history of depression, um, kind of a rapid titration from 37.5 to 150 milligrams, and then pregabalin uh, for this pain, trying to avoid opioids, obviously. Uh, 25 milligrams every eight hours, titrated up to 15 milligrams. Um, it seems like her length of stay may have been three days, but they don't exactly stay. And upon discharge, they gave her a script for naltrexone, 50 milligrams. It was to start a week after to prevent uh, precipitation of withdrawal symptoms. So that's the case. So then they go into liter literature review, which is very similar um, to what we just heard. Um, um, mostly the I would say the things that they're, they've added to what we've already heard is that um, it's actually under investigation currently for therapeutic use, um, and, but not yet available or marketed that way. Um, otherwise, the descriptions of the onset um, withdrawal uh, duration is all the same as we just heard. Um, so the case reports that have been uh, reported in there, they describe this series um, that they have a table of. A lot of them are not isolated uh, kratom ingestions. They're mixed substances, and all the ones that were associated with uh, death were not an isolated uh, kratom case. Um, but they do show uh, there's quite a large like, cross-sectional survey, which is not the most reliable information, but that people um, experienced uh, toxic effects, addictive potential withdrawal side effects uh, when discontinuing it. Um, and then they go on to discuss um, how they've seen these effects in rat models that they've been used. Um, and that's basically the discussion of it. As to the quality of this case report, it's pretty good quality uh, case report. It meets um, going through the just like medical case reports, their criteria. Um, it's a novel topic really here. Um, Ethics as per standard of care seems like it. Um, the title is appropriate. Abstract describes appropriate things. Um, and their introduction, um, they didn't really have one. The case description was pretty accurate in the doses. Uh, they just don't exactly tell you the timing of the other agents they gave, so whether or not that was were influencing her symptoms. Um, and then discussion was detailed with the current literature that's out there and their conclusion 
FTP messages this has predictive potential. Um, we need more studies looking into it, and it's becoming an increasing problem in the US, essentially. Yeah, no, great. I mean, I included this basically because it was a pretty well-described uh, example of measured by a at least reproducible scale of withdrawal syndromes, and somebody who literally was taking this for two years, mm -hmm. which probably isn't the, the most typical user out there, mm -hmm. but she had pretty well-documented two years of use and a pretty abrupt onset of both physical cravings and withdrawal and the other behaviors that go along with addictive pathology um, leading up to her admission here. So it's a drug that, you know, it's that if it is addictive, potentially is a drug that perhaps the DEA, as they have done, should mm -hmm. regulate. Um, it's not just the safe herb. It's not like you know, chewing some leafy substance and it does great things all the time. Um, a couple other small points to point out. Most of the deaths that have people say, well, it causes deaths, to be completely fair, have all been, as you stated, with other mixed drugs. And probably the one that got the most attention was something called Krypton. And Krypton was a mixture of Kratom with probably Tramadol, which we actually talked about this morning. And the people probably died from the new opiate receptor agonist effects of overdoses of Tramadol. Um, so... An interesting thing to lay some groundwork that it's not a completely <coughs> benign substance. To kind of elaborate on that more about dependence and sort of a more of a interview-based uh, article, um, Rachel's going to tell us about a study that's done in the place where it's a bit bigger problem, which is Southeast Asia. <clears throat> so this is this article is uh, Kratom dependence, withdrawal symptoms, and craving regular users. Um, so. Um, as far as the introduction goes, we've talked about this a bit, but it goes through how Kratom is an indigenous plant in Southeast Asia among the rural working populations and use it for energizing and pain-relieving effects. Um, and so that is the population that they uh, wanted to study here. Um, they talk about the main psychoactive alkaloid being metragenine, um, and then the pain relief that you get from 7-hydroxymetragenine, which is a metabolite. Um, uh, they talk about the various preparations, um, and that it used to be, it was the plant matter in K2 for a while there, um, although it's likely not anymore. Um, and then there's purified metragenine that you can buy um, online. So there are more and more reports of abuse potential, um, and then case reports um, of abuse and addiction, toxicity, fatal interactions with other drugs, um, and so, and then there are the animal studies that we talked about a little bit there. Um, so you can buy this off of the internet. There are dried leaves, powders, um, concentrated samples, and various other um, preparations. And then the qualities and the amount of metragenine vary widely. Um, so in Malaysia, Thailand, and uh, many EU countries, um, these... Uh, preparations are controlled drugs. Um, and then the U.S., the U.K., and, and Germany, they're not controlled yet. Um, and then, so what they wanted to do was the first systematic study of crowd dependence withdrawal symptoms and trading in human populations of regular crowd users in Malaysia. Um, so the next section talks about the study design. It was cross-sectional. Um, in 2012, they went to three different states in Malaysia that's close to uh, Thailand, where they know kratom use is prevalent, and they found 293 males. Um, and they recruited them 
and had them um, had them take just basically questionnaires um, that they did around town. They also had them do urine uh, urine testing to make sure that they didn't have any other drugs on board, um, so that they could be sure that the, all these effects were from kratom use um, and not from something else. Um, and so the tests and analysis. They basically used marijuana checklists because there's not really anything specifically to measure kratom dependence. Um, and so they had them fill out these questionnaires. And then the analysis they got, um, fresh kratom juice preparations, um, and then analyzed the amount of metragenine that, were, that was um, found in, in the various samples. Um, and then statistical analysis, they uh, separated them into uh, two groups based on how often they used Kratom. So they did uh, medium-term users um, and then long-term users. So that was separated by uh, more than three years of Kratom use and less than three years. Um, so the results section, um, they were all male users. There's a, let's see, this is table one basically that we're going through, but they're all males, 293 of them of Malay ethnicity. Their average age was like 29, about 29 years old. Um, most of them had completed upper secondary education. Um, they were, the majority of them were workers. Um, and then they had a lower than average income. And 36% of them were ex-drug users. Um, let's see if there are any other interesting statistics. Um, not a whole lot, but then they talk about um, they were drinking about 3.5 times per day. They were drinking this kratom juice preparation. Um, and so when they got the kratom juice, uh, they found that 350 mils of the fresh kratom juice um, uh, was about the it was about one serving. Um, they consumed between 0.5 and one and a half glasses a day. Um, and then 44% of them consumed more than three glasses. Um, Let's see. So the kratom preparation and use, um, they, this is prepared by boiling the leaves for three to four hours um, and until it emits a strong smell. And then they uh, prefer to drink this fresh kratom juice that's sold in just basic plastic baggies from stores around town. It's not legal, so you kind of just have to know where who makes it and where to find it. Um, so that's what they did to get um, to get various... Uh, various samples, but none of them know the purity level. They just know where they get it from. Um, and then the reasons for using Kratom is the next section. So most of them said it was to enhance their physical energy, um, which was known from uh, them being workers and wanting to work longer and harder and um, have better energy. So more than a third of them um, did them for, did it for peer influence because it's highly prevalent there. And then 15% of them used it to abstain from illicit drugs. Um, there was 13% of them that used it to treat their medical problems. Um, and then others wanted to improve their mood and overcome fatigue. Uh, the next section is Kratom dependence. So all of the regular users claim to be dependent on Kratom. Um, more than half of them had severe dependence problems, um, and then 45% had moderate dependence problems. 89% um, of them had tried to abstain from Kratom in the past, um, but 90% of them said that they have better so social functioning with it. Um, and then mainly they're able to work longer hours, they can socialize better, 
Um, 79% of them reported the need to use it daily. Um, and then 32% had increased their kratom intake. 42% um, maintained their, their intake since the onset of use. Um, so of the people that drank more than three glasses a day, um, they were more likely to report severe dependence than those who consumed less than three a day. Um, so the next section is kratom withdrawal. So they reported their withdrawal symptoms, and that includes sleeping difficulty, decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting, muscle spasms, sweating, fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea, headaches, hot flashes, watery eyes and nose, hiccups, shakiness, and tremors. So 76% of them experienced body aches, um, and this was up to severe muscle pain and cramps from standing abruptly. Um, and then 65% had mild withdrawal effects, 35% had moderate to severe withdrawal effects. Um, and then it took one to three days in 64% of them uh, for the withdrawal symptoms to subside. So, um, and then for 36% of them, the withdrawal symptoms lasted for longer than three days. Um, in the people that drank more than three glasses, uh, they were more likely to have the severe symptoms compared to those that drank less. Um, as far as uh, psychological withdrawal, they had nervousness, sadness, restlessness, anger, tension, and depressed mood um, when withdrawing from Kratom. 73% of them um, had at least five of these psychological withdrawal symptoms, um, and none of them had suicidal ideation. Kratom craving. So 23% had high craving for Kratom, 77% um, reported low craving, um, and then in the, pe the people who drank more than three glasses, as expected, were more likely to report higher craving symptoms. Um, only 2% had sought treat treatment for um, their Kratom use problems. So medium versus long-term Kratom use. There were not statistically significant differences in the reasons for Kratom use, um, and no significant differences in dependent severity, withdrawal severity, and craving between medium and long-term Kratom users. So the differences that we reported before were based on how many glasses they drank and it, they didn't find any difference between how long they've been using. Um, and then the metragenine analysis. So uh, one glass of Kratom juice, the 350 mils, um, had, let's see, a mean of 79 milligrams of metragenine in it. Um, and on average, they were drinking three and a half glasses a day, so that averaged 276 and a half milligrams of metragenine. Um, so the next section is the discussion. Um, they talk about how widely it is used um, and how their anecdotal reports um, of the dependence and withdrawal before prior to this study. Um, and then in the study, all of the respondents were dependent on Kratom and they had unpleasant withdrawal symptoms and craving after trying to abstain. Um, so it's, it's relatively cheap, um, it's easy to find, everybody was dependent on it is the next section. Um, they all shared the belief that people who drink this are hard workers, um, they use it as energy boosting, um, and so it's, it's very socially acceptable there, um, so that there's peer pressure for using it. Um, and then people who use other drugs are seen, like cannabis, are seen as lazy, where these people are seen as diligent and hardworking. So it's probably contributing to a low rate of um, seeking treatment, um, even though they're experiencing uh, withdrawal and dependence. Um, so 
they also talk about how uh, Crowdham is instrumentali instrumentalized um, in these worker groups um, to do tasks that you had originally been drug independent. And so now um, this has led to enhanced and prolonged drug use um, since they use it to work harder. Um, let's see, more than half of them reported dependence. They kind of say that several times here. We know that these people are dependent and have withdrawal um, and they're self-medicating their withdrawal symptoms because most of the symptoms that they experienced were not acceptable for them, especially since they were having um, severe pain. Um, and then most of this is a little bit redundant here. Um, but there, they also said there weren't a whole lot of people that were using it to get off of other drugs. Um, it wasn't used very often to reduce dependent on illicit substances like cannabis, heroin, and methamphetamine. Um, they reiterated the metragenine content there. Um, and then the amount of metragenine in Western Kratom abusers is not clear um, because they had just bought uh, samples from where the, the study participants were buying theirs. Um, and there are so many various uh, substances available online. So who knows how much is in that. Um, and then they talk about high craving um, and then not being dependent on the length of consumption. Um, but it was more dependent on the amount that they were consuming. Um, so basically that was their, that was their findings that these people who regularly consumed uh, larger amounts were more likely to be dependent to experience unacceptable withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, so a survey of cultural practice that, I mean, realistically would be akin to drinking three cups of Starbucks a day and going to work yeah. in this country, um, where culturally it's accepted, people who drink this are felt to be hard workers, not people who are sitting around abusing drugs, mm -hmm. and yet they still have dependencies and cravings and withdrawal phenomena when, when it's all stopped. So even in, in the least sort of, say, evil of reasons for using it, they're using it as this cultural phenomenon to work. It still creates symptoms that are problematic for people. There's been um, this uh, question of whether it's used differently when you take it out of the cultural phenomenon in Malaysia and Southeast Asia and Thailand, and we'd make it a herbal thing. Do you go to like a head shop in Europe and the United States to buy? Are we using more? Are we acting differently? And so to talk a little bit about the trail of the roots of Kratom as it went from this herbal product to this psychoactive recreational novel drug, uh, Mike. Well, this is a kind of an interesting paper that's a combination of a review of the literature and then some uh, searching that they did online through plain old Google and then many uh, drug use websites to kind of find what's the, the latest on there, what's the pulse of Kratom um, on the internet. Uh, mainly out of the UK, there's some authors from Italy, Malaysia, Hungary, um, a variety of places. There's a lot of stuff here that's duplicated in some of the papers we've talked about before, so I'll try to highlight some of the things that are uh, unique to this one. One thing I wanted to point out that metragenine, though the primary component of Kratom, is not the only one. There is figure one there on the second page that shows some of the other known constituents. Um, 
and we really don't know much about what those other ones do. So I think most of the research and testing and detection revolves around detecting the metragenine and sometimes the 7-hydroxymetragenine, but this just highlights how much we don't know about it because there's other slew of compounds that are not studied and may have you know, different effects on different receptors than, than those do. As we said, mild doses are, have stimulatory effects, larger doses associated with sedative and narcotic effects. Um, just a little bit about their methods. They did a literature review, it's pretty straightforward. And then they found 227 websites, drug forums, um, news groups, chat rooms, mail lists, newsletters, bulletin boards that they searched. And that seems like a, quite a intense thing that they did is they carried out this search on a weekly basis from 2008 to 2015 uh, using Google in English, Italian, and Hungarian. So pretty intensive uh, scouring of the internet, not just a cursory Googling before they published to see you know, what's out there. And they tried to quantify a little bit uh, um, of what was out there since really there's a paucity of data on what's actually happening and even recognizing that this is a, you know, a substance that people are using. Um, so some results, I'll go through some of the things about Kratom itself that they'll talk about and then they kind of divide it up into Southeast Asia use versus Western country use. Um, a bit about pharmacology. Purity may be 66% pure in some leaves from Thailand, but only 12% in those from Malaysia. Um, so even stuff that we know is kratom from the tree could have wildly different concentrations. And then when you move that towards something you buy on the internet, could you know very much open it up to who knows, maybe the shipment is the Malaysian version and you're used to that, and now you've got Thai version, and so you just had a six-fold increase in your potency of what you were used to be using um, and you know no one's testing or certifying any of these plus there's all these other minor components that we don't know um, much about at all. Interestingly 7-hydroxymetragenine which is only about 2% of this um, does have some pretty potent effects at the mu and kappa opioid receptors so even though it's a minor constituent it may have a large pharmacologic role but really all this is you know not entirely clear. They've implicated some serotonergic and adrenergic pathways, so maybe it was tramadol causing seizures, maybe some norepinephrine and serotonin and other things are um, leading to that as an overdose or an excessive use. Um, and like we said, there are some other of these compounds that were not reversed by naloxone that might be having other effects, unlike the nitrogen, and it might just work at your usual, typical mu opioid receptor. So... As I say, the pharmacology is erratic. Um, let's see, we have no data on blood concentration in patients. Though there is some half-life data of around four hours that we think. Um, and they just highlight some of the difficulties in studying this, that it's um, not very water-soluble. There's variable release in the different fluids simulated biological fluids, it has it's acid degradable, and they say that's probably why there's so different varied reports in the literature um, about um, the pharmacology, because we really haven't standardized any way to look at it and test it um, you know, in vitro, in vivo, or in animals, or in humans, so it's not a lot is known. Very protein-bound, seems to have hepatic metabolism through 3A4, um, might inhibit 2D6. 
um, some question of being uh, P-glycoprotein substrates as well for other drug, uh, drug interactions. They highlight some antidepressant effects, perhaps some anti-inflammatory effects uh, through COX-2. Then we get into things people love to talk about. Well, it's, you know, it's cured your depression and your pain, and hey, look, it cures cancer too. It's cytotoxic to human cancer cell lines. And maybe it won't even make you, uh, you know, tolerant or dependent. But we've seen some evidence to the contrary on that. So you can see where some of the panacea um, things come from, where you know it's good for me, yet it also kills cancer at the same time. So maybe it's not so good for me. Um, adverse effects, including hypertension, impaired cognition, hepatic failure, something that comes up. Um, this seems to be a cholestatic pattern. Um, Reports of bilirubin levels greater than 20, and perhaps some reports of torsades through um, delayed rectal higher potassium um, channels as well in, in myocytes. I didn't look that reference up, it might just be a uh, in vitro study of cardiac myocytes rather than specific reports in humans. I don't believe they cited other cases of torsades reported in humans related to kratom, but at least something to be aware of. Uh, something I learned, there are a few other names that this is known by. Kratom seems to be what uh, we are familiar with here in the U.S. at least, but Ketum, um, Biak in Malaysia, Kratom are other ones there. Um, the rest of this I may just skip over as it's been highlighted before about who uses it and the methods um, in which they, they do. Um, a little bit on prevalence. There, some of these estimates are around 2% of people using it within the last 30 days um, in Thailand. However, then there's among teenagers, so that's increased up to 9%. Um, just a study looking at prevalence of psychoactive drugs in motor vehicle uh, collisions, 0.9% were positive for metragyny. And then I think this is interesting and something that was cited by the DEA in their move to schedule is uh, the reports of adverse effects like seizures. They say seizures linked to kratom quintupled in Thailand from 2005 to 2011, far higher than those reported for any other drug. Um, and similar things in Malaysia and Myanmar as well. Um, they note that in Taiwan, there has not been as much penetration of kratom as with some of the other novel psychoactive substances like the substituted cathinones and synthetic cannabinoids. All right, I'm going to skip just a little bit more of stuff that's been repeated there. Um, again, not much social stigma towards kratom users. So they don't appear to have much impairment in their social functioning. Um, one thing that's interesting is this figure 2 on page 5 of that article there that may have some confounders, but here are kratom-related treatment admissions and uh, Thai uh, like substance abuse programs down from 1,000 to 3,000 over a period of four years. They say this may be due to more regulation moving that if you are found to be using kratom, then you are uh, obligated to get treatment. And so there may have been a change there that all these people were using kratom before, but now they're just being made to go into treatment therapy or having admissions related to that. So not clear to be able to sort out whether there's a massive spike in kratom use, though we did have some of those other references saying there was an increase and we do have these adverse effects being reported more. Again, is that just a bias of recognizing 
that, oh, maybe Kratom isn't just this benign thing people have been using for decades, and some attention has been turned to recognizing Kratom as a possible cause for seizures rather than dismissing it. So not known, but at least that's, uh, that's coming up. All right. Um, we'll go over now to the Kratom use in Western countries. So as we said, available in a variety of formulations here rather than maybe just during the leaves or a tea, capsules, tablets, powders, concentrated extracts. Uh, pretty reasonable price, 2 to 10 euros for a gram of Kratom 15X, 6 to 15 euros for 10 grams of dried Kratom, or even lower for some Kratom Power available online. Um, and how much that correlates to an actual dose that's being used, and in the other study that was more in the realm of 300 milligrams, you know, if this being, you know, purified Kratom, does that make it different than uh, the actual Kratom plant material from the other ones? I'm not exactly sure how that correlates. I mean, in the in Southeast Asia is regulated in Thailand, but in Europe and North America, not much regulation. Denmark, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Sweden, um, regulating it. And then I guess I did not realize that Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Massachusetts have some regulation on Kratom as well. Um, and then here we get into some of the internet data that I think is pretty interesting. If they look at you know, websites or shops offering legal highs. Um, it is one of the most offered things available online. 44% of the shops across the European Union that they noted. Um, and then similar things there in, looks like the United Kingdom, where this is like the number one thing available is looking for an alternative legal high that Kratom is the one that's um, being sold now. Um, again, less often smoked, more often ingested or in teas. People are still using, even with these other formulations that are there. Um, some reports from some of these um, websites like Arrowwood that we uh, are likely familiar with, the people reporting empathy, euphoria, um, sedative and analgesic at higher doses. Uh, just one I highlighted from box one on the following page, I felt my insides becoming soft and pliable, like the onset <laughs> of most trippy drugs. Uh, mo most other descriptions were not quite so colorful as that saying, I feel relaxed, I feel sedated, you know, I'm, it's nice and pleasant. Um, but it seems pretty consistent with what's reported among users in Southeast Asia as well. Side effects, uh, a whole list of these, nausea, constipation, sleep disturbance, temporary erectile dysfunction, itching, sweating, hyperpigmentation. Um, and again, users themselves reporting tolerance in some of these online uh, sites. Um, and then patients are definitely reporting it to manage their opioid withdrawal or for anxiolytic and antidepressant effects rather than for its mild stimulant effects. I don't have exact numbers reporting of the percentage of um, Western users reporting this amount of uh, use for opioid withdrawal versus Thailand, but it seems to be more predominant that it's used um, for that rather than the mild stimulant effects like the uh, prototypical manual labor there. Uh, some other adverse effects that they report 
the liver toxicity, which we mentioned, seizure and coma, um, the intrahepatic cholestasis, ARDS, hypothyroidism, and then a site which we mentioned before, the krypton being associated uh, uh, with tramadol and its metabolite, odesmethyl tramadol, possibly being a confounder for seizures in, in those patients. Um, there's some, a few, and all these deadly cases where their mortality uh, was hard to tease apart what was happening. None of these are isolated kratom um, uses. There's some decongestion, some stimulants, cold medications, benzodiazepine, venlafaxine, diphenhydramine, mirtazapine, um, other the zopaclone, citalopram, lamotrigine. So none of these are in isolation. They do cite one where the metragenine concentrations were very high while other medications were um, more in therapeutic range. So what that comes down to is this is often uh, polysubstance abuse that most of these users are also using other things as well and not just uh, using kratom. Um, so that's pretty much what they look at. There. I think the takeaway from this is that the, like we suspect, the pattern of use in Western users is different from um, the typical manual labor use. There definitely is dependence and withdrawal and then some effects that I had not realized or things like the intrahepatic cholestasis uh, being a possibility, um, the seizures and respiratory or you know depression, but maybe not so much respiratory depression. Hard exactly to say. I don't think we have clear things of that saying isolated kratom causing severe respiratory depression, but uh, just other effects that we might suspect just based on the receptors we we know about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that pretty much I mean sums up what is known about. It's, it's a plant and in Malaysia and Thailand where it seems to be used culturally in lower doses or um, it still causes um, essentially uh, addiction and craving and withdrawal. In Western countries where it's more used as a drug to abuse, I really hasn't talked about any of the testimonials of people trying to use it to withdraw from drugs. It clearly poses some dangers in that it's often part of poly pharmacy use where deaths have occurred, but as far as by itself isolated, it's unlikely to cause enough respiratory depression as other opiates have to make you stop breathing, although clearly it's a kappa opiate uh, agonist and works there. It doesn't seem to work at the mu receptor, though some articles suggest it probably does at higher doses. So the difference in how it's used. So the question kind of boils down is, you know, was did the DEA make the right decision? Well, I mean, their job is to protect us from drugs of abuse that have adverse effects. Um, their job is not to do the complete research on drugs before they make that conclusion, but have a high enough suspicion. I think the number of calls to poison centers and other places have gone up, and that is the spectrum of how it's used in the United States has shifted from sort of a, rec a mild thing like it's used in Finally, in Malaysia, to really, it's like, let's go buy a bunch of capsules, mix mm -hmm. it up, and, and get high. Um, as far as the adequacy of all the people who are protesting and say, no, 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 no it's gotten me off heroin and things like that, um, being scheduled one does not prevent, certainly prevents them from buying it. It doesn't prevent us from researching that. It doesn't prevent us from looking at the specific components, methrogene and 7-hydroxymethrogene as um, potential drugs that may in fact have pharmacologic action that may be a benefit. Um, 
the people who are defending the folks to continue to sell this are mostly people who back the companies that make giant massive amounts of powders and herbal industry and unfortunately it had become a million if not a billion dollar industry in the United States completely unregulated and I'm not saying every industry that makes money should be regulated but there seems to be a balance between the two and this is a drug with side effect potential and uh, I think schedule one is probably the right place for it right now. Yeah, it looks by the DA's criteria or I guess by the Controlled Substance Act it's really the only thing they can do with it. It has significant potential for abuse. It is a pharmacological active compound and there's no known medical use and then I think a third criteria under schedule one is no known safe dosing under the supervision of a physician. No one could cite you should you know, chew three leaves or, or whatever else. And, and the DEA's move, I think, is just a temporary one-year mm -hmm. scheduling, and which they, together with the FDA, look at the existing evidence to see should it be permanently scheduled or not. And obviously, it's not without precedent. There are many other countries and states and places that have already right. done that before, so it's not a totally new thing. Right. Interesting that as I was reading this article yesterday, the coffee shop I looked up across the street for me is we sell the best organic cut in town. <laughs> yeah, no, it's still widely. You can walk all all over town and uh, yeah. 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 I think a few of these are having going out of business sales. They have three more days to clear their shelves. Um, by the time you hear this, they'll probably be gone. So change gears a little bit. Um, a couple other herbs that are of interest, um, maybe not as prevalent, but also start with the letter K, are um, kava. So tell us about um, some of the risks with kava is our fellow Matt. Yeah, so there's a, a couple of articles we'll talk about, but just kind of present an overview first of kava. It's a, it's a plant. Um, it's the Piper methysticum, uh, which is a cultivated kava plant. Um, which is thought to be um, a descendant of wild kava or Piper wichmanii. I'm probably not saying that right, but these are uh, uh, pepper plants. It's a family with over 2,000 species, and um, historically, kava has been found in sort of Oceania, which encompasses uh, Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. So, kind of the area of the South Pacific, uh, including the Marianas and Hawaii. Everything basically along the Tropic of Cancer down to the Tropic of Capricorn. Um, so a very large geopolitical, socio-cultural area, um, and there's evidence that kava use is, you know goes back centuries, essentially, and at least anecdotal reports that presidents and queens and popes have sort of um, consumed kava as part of religious ceremonies or. Uh, travel to any number of, of uh, island nations in that particular region. It's um, uh, been studied widely for at least 150 years, uh, you know, ever since the, the kava lactones, which are thought to be the uh, primary sort of pharmacoactive components, uh, and of which there are at least six major and maybe as many as 20 minor kava lactones within the plant. He's been studied for uh, you know a long time, um, and I think just to kind of set the stage more recently, uh, back sort of in the 80s to early 90s, there was a push in Australia to import kava um, for Aboriginal populations suffering uh, from 
uh, alcohol abuse, and it was thought to maybe be somewhat uh, protective or, or uh, a treatment modality for alcohol um, dependence. Uh, this is maybe because what we think cavalactones do, nobody's really sure, but some proposed mechanisms of action involve uh, GABA-A and GABA-B activation. Um, and so by and large, uh, it's good to probably think of them, at least simplistically, um, as activating central and peripheral nervous uh, sim uh, systems in a generally sedative uh, manner. So the... It's, kava refers to both the plant as well as the uh, drink which is made. Uh, it's the root material, oftentimes, um, of this big, broad, leafy green plant. Uh, oftentimes the roots, but also sometimes the shoots, which is made into this traditional drink, this sort of uh, strange-appearing brown liquid. Um, and as you can imagine, in all these different parts of the world, there's lots of different ways to prepare the drink. So the first article I'm going to talk about is from the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology from 2011, and it's titled Kava Hepatotoxicity in Traditional and Modern Use, the Presumed Pacific Kava Paradox Hypothesis Revisited. So this article kind of centers on this phenomenon that happened in the early 2000s, specifically 2003, when uh, several studies were coming out that um, there may be um, some proposed mechanism to explain why a lot of kava users were experiencing hepatotoxicity. And um, it's not necessarily minor toxicity. Uh, a lot of patients have required liver transplantation over the years for fulminant liver failure. Uh, and the article uh, sort of starts by talking about um, five studies uh, in or around 2003, three of them from Australia, one from uh, New Caledonia, and one from the Tongan population of Hawaii, which tried to look at um, why uh, this liver toxicity uh, was occurring. And, and in brief, you know, they kind of looked at uh, AST, ALT, gamma, uh, glutamyl transpeptidase, um, alkaline phosphatase, bilirubin levels, and so it was a, uh, collected a lot of serum samples and asked uh, patients about their kava use. Um, and at least these early reports may have suggested that kava that was prepared from more traditional methods, uh, meaning a um, water-based extract, uh, possibly conferred less hepatotoxicity than some of the Western or newer methods of extraction using um, uh, acetone or uh, ethanolic um, solvents. So that was at least known as the paradoxical, um, or I'm sorry, the Pacific Kava Paradox Hypothesis. Um, shortly thereafter, in and around 2003 again, um, there were sort of fleeting case reports that started coming out uh, about hepatotoxicity um, associated with kava use that was prepared in these more traditional manners using the um, water extracts, and uh, including uh, populations from Vanuatu and sort of all over Micronesia and Melanesia. Um, and 
comparing them really at large to case reports from Europe or from Australia or uh, even sort of North America. And the article makes the point that over time, um, you know, in more and more data came out and um, enough at least to reject this particular hypothesis. Um, and at least at one point in 2007, the World Health Organization got involved um, to release some data that um, this, and it's still rare, the hepatotoxicity that occurs after kava ingestion, but the um, event rate seems to probably be the same no matter how you prepare it. So uh, the article then goes on to um, say, well, not only can we maybe reject this hypothesis that the Pacific Kava paradox exists, but you know, let's take a closer look at why um, hepatotoxicity occurs with Kava use in the first place. And they cite some interesting sort of preliminary evidence that maybe it's the manner in which the Kava is prepared or the source of the Kava root or extract that you're starting with. Um, and they sort of cite some, um, some research data that um, different bacterial and mold species uh, have been found in some kava preparations or kava um, uh, source material. And these may include aspergillus species, so we're talking about mycotoxins, um, specifically uh, ocrotoxin A and aflatoxin. Uh, these are toxins that we talk about not infrequently here. Um, but that uh, the kava rhizomes and the roots may contain higher amounts of mold uh, or bacteria or have some type of contamination and that these sort of biologic products may be potentially contributing to some of the hepatotoxicity. Um, and the article really ends with sort of a call for, as most articles do, more research and an appreciation that it could be a multifactorial uh, approach to uh, developing hepatotoxicity. And the second article um, is a little bit more recent. It's 2015, um, out of the Archives of Toxicology. And um, it's, uh, for as short as it is, provides some interesting information, um, looking specifically at genetic polymorphisms in the uh, uridine diphosphate glucuronosyl transferases, or UGTs, um, that are thought to play a role in sort of detoxification or, or glucuronidation and excretion of kava lactones. So uh, for a more sort of biochemical-based approach, um, they cite, uh, the authors do, that uh, kava lactones are limited by uh, both hydroxylation and demethylation step, uh, uh, steps, and that prior work has sort of looked at the uh, CYP2D6 gene and the 2C19 enzyme, and that these may play a role in sort of uh, genetic polymorphisms and differences between different users and how they uh, eliminate or excrete the cobalactones. Um, and then they cite that uh, more than 50% of the cobalactones undergo this urinary excretion, and that glucuronidation is probably a very important pathway to that excretion. Um, some prior work uh, looking at the UGT 1A7 gene has sort of uncovered different genetic polymorphisms um, and isoforms that occur with obviously various um, prevalence in different populations. And here they cite that the allele frequency 
of the UGT1A7 gene in Caucasians, at least, is maybe 15 to 36 percent. And then they sort of say, well, we, we were able to identify four patients with um, strong evidence of kava-induced liver toxicity. Um, and they sort of uh, back up that claim with, with short case descriptions of each patient. Uh, three of them actually required uh, liver transplantation um, and all had sort of uh, clearly de demonstrated liver uh, dysfunction um, after a pretty clear um, uh, use of kava, taking into account the different causation theory. So, um, and then they kind of looked at the UGT1A7 gene and they amplified it um, and sort of used um, different exons uh, and purification steps to really look at the isoforms of the 1A7. And what they found was kind of interesting is that the, um, the UGT1A7 uh, star 3 isoform uh, in their group of granted only four patients, was 37%, uh, um, and it was actually 50% in the group that required the liver transplantation. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's certainly not definitive, but I think the article raises questions about what role genetic polymorphisms may play in users' uh, excretion, metabolism and excretion of the cavalactones uh, and what that might mean for their risk of developing hepatotoxicity after problems. Yeah, so again, you know, whenever there's an exposure but an infrequent adverse effect from it, we always have to think genetics may be the link that defines who's going to have the bad outcome. And they just at least raise the possibility that unlike CYP system, there's this other system, the UGT, system that detoxifies compounds and maybe either enhances a metabolism to a toxic intermediary or slows metabolism of a toxic, you know, parent product enough to cause fulminant liver failure. So it's not just the transient liver failure that a lot of people, some people get from drinking kava, uh, but people who go on to need liver transplants because they have sort of a downward fulminant course. So something to think of when we get called to work up a liver trans tra failure patient um, on consults and uh, can ask for genetic studies. I'm not sure we'll get them, but it's always interesting um, to know. I think, and I've always postulated, that there's something about people who take Tylenol chronically probably have, and seem to develop liver failure at relatively low doses may likewise have some genetic predisposition <clears throat> to uh, liver failure. So finally, to, to round up the group of the K's is cot, or cat, depending how you pronounce it, um, a different shrub from a different part of the world. So, uh, Craig. Yeah, so this, this uh, review article is called Cot Use, History and Heart Failure. Um, it's out of the Oman Medical Journal in 2015. Um, Which we all read. What's that? Which we all read. Right? Oh, yeah, right. Yes, it's, it's on my frequently read list. Um, so this, this is a shrub that's native to Ethiopia, East Africa, and the Southern Arabian Peninsula. And um, it's particularly the, the, the leaves of the shrub that are consumed. So they have an aromatic odor that's kind of astringent and slightly sweet. Um, it's consumed in multiple ways, but predominantly it's chewed by folks. And they chew it for long periods of time, several hours at a time. They tuck it in their cheek, and they chew it throughout the day. Um, and it's most comparable to sort of like an amphetamine, uh, like psychoactive substance. It's from the caffeinone class of drugs. Um, and so people frequently experience euphoria and stimulation. 
and the tail end kind of more of a relaxed state. Um, it's estimated about 20 million people worldwide use cot. Um, this use is predominant in the in Yemen and then the Southeast Asia and East Africa. The folks that use it in the United States and the Western world are typically immigrants from those regions most frequently. Um, and there's, it's noted that it's concurrently used widespread with tobacco, that there's a, a significant parallel in the use between the two. Um, in this study they conducted, they did a large literature search, and their particular interest was the cardiac effects of, of cot use. Um, they searched PubMed, uh, Embase, and then they did Google Scholar and Google searches for related websites, even, and, and went through and vetted them. They found 520 total articles through their search. Um, really only 37 were deemed suitable for their inclusion. And the spread in Table 1 is pretty, is, is pretty broad for what they found. So they found six case reports, nine reviews, um, 11 prospective studies, and 11 cross-sectionals. There's really no greater than four from any one country. Many countries are offering one particular study on it. Um, so it's, it's widely used, but relatively unstudied, um, especially with regard to cardiac effects. Um, they start out, interestingly, with a lot of the history of the drug, which I thought was fun to read about. Um, it, they can track it back as far as the 13th century in use in Ethiopia, and then it was ultimately brought to Yemen in about the 15th century. Um, and it, it started earlier than coffee. Um, so it's a stimulant that people have been using culturally for a very long time um, for its, its uh, slight stimulant effect. They also describe alternative uh, methods of use beyond chewing. So sometimes people boil it and make a tea out of the, the dried leaves, or they um, make a paste. They grind it all up into a paste and mix it with honey for kind of a sweet flavor. Um, but it seems to be that the focus of this paper and, and most popular method of use is is through uh, consumption, um, through uh, uh, buccal uh, chewing and, and buccal absorption. Um, they also describe a little bit tangentially some, some synthetic forms out there. Um, one is like sort of a capsular form. You get 200 milligrams of cathinone. Um, and some of the synthetic forms are uh, racophete, graba, and mephedronone. And mephedronone seems to be the most popular one. It has some slangs that that were all new to me, drone, MCAT, and meow meow, um, presumably related to its sounding as cat or cut. Um, a version of it in Oregon is called Oregon Sunshine. Oregon Sunshine, not related to cat or cut at all. And then um, they, they spent some time focusing on the Yemeni population, I think largely because most of the authors are from the Middle East. And in most of the Middle East, it's been uh, outlawed, except for in Yemen, it's still it remains legal to use, and it's very um, commonly used. They say that nearly 90% of adult males chew this um, for three to four hours daily, and 50% or more of women chew it as well, up to 73% in one study. Um, children are even using it. They don't demonstrate a gender split, but 15 to 20% of children below the age of 12 are daily consumers. Um, so it's very widespread. And then it's actually a huge economic force as well. Half of the household's income goes towards paying for the cough requirements of the head of the household. Um, so it's a, it's a daily consumption, and, and most of your economic uh, production in your family goes paying for the, the head of the family's use. Um, and they go on to talk about legality of it. Um, it's banned in many European countries, Germany, France, 
and the Netherlands, U.S., Canada as well. Um, and uh, they talk about that it's Schedule One in the U.S. Um, because of its caffeinone um, component. Um, and then, so cot use in the Arab Gulf states, other than Yemen, is illegal. Um, and I think this is is really leading as far as what population they studied and where a lot of a lot of the papers come from. Um, paralleling for maybe some more Western-related um, effects of the synthetic caffeinones, which are the quote-unquote quote legal highs, um, even though caffeinones are illegal. They're marketed as not for human consumption and often sold as bath salts and plant foods. Um, and those are used either ingested in, in a pill form or nasal insufflation um, and have some pretty adverse cardiac, psychiatric, and neurologic manifestations. Um, I don't think that the bulk of their article is spent talking about those. It's more about the daily use of the, of the um, plant itself. Um, so the cathinone and the canthine um, are structurally are the kind of the leading products in there that are structurally similar to amphetamines. Um, they also note that it has uh, cathinine, eduline, and ephedrine, um, but they're, those are less their focus. Um, and they really use this parallel between amphetamine and cathinone to drive a lot of their um, uh, description of the cardiac effects of, of this drug. Um, and... Um, so they first start by looking at kind of what happens to folks who, who chew cot um, regularly and what the effect is on the heart and then the coronary blood vessels as well. Um, they lead with a couple studies where essentially healthy volunteers were given cathinone um, and then their vital signs were monitored and their blood, blood levels were monitored and they were able to show that um, in healthy volunteers, increases in blood pressure and heart rate were notable along with the general trend of the concentration of the cathinone. Um, and this was repeated in a couple different studies. And then uh, they started looking at more uh, use in the daily users. So um, there's some studies that note that habitual users have um, hypertension. And in particular, they noticed that they have um, increased in their mean diastolic pressure. It seems that their mean systolic pressure seems to be unchanged, but their mean diastolic pressure is greater across multiple studies. And then again, they also noted higher heart rates in non-users. They don't de describe the degree as, as greatly in detail as, as the um, diastolic blood pressure being frequently above 80 in the regular daily users. Um, and then one study went so far as to actually take regular cot users and parallel the blood plasma levels with their changes in blood pressure as well. Um, and then, um, so, and then a study in Yemen, and they actually took the duration of the cot chewing sessions. So those folks, they had elevated uh, blood pressure for three hours after chewing one hour of cot um, with 25% of a traditional cot session dose, which one hour is, is a relatively short period of time compared to the typical duration of use of three, four, or five hours. Um, and then... Um, the next, the next study, they, they studied cot use and looked at uh, vasoconstriction of coronary arteries. Um, one of the interesting things about this is they, they were able to demonstrate that, that the vasoconstriction of coronary arteries was not related to a direct or indirect sympathomimetic effect. So they gave these folks um, prazosin, which is an alpha agonist or antagonist, and um, they still had vasoconstriction. So their argument was that this, that this vasoconstriction was not needed by a, an alpha effect. Um, 
And then they go on to talk about coronary vessels, uh, myocardium, and heart failure in these folks. And their leading state, their leading paragraph is a, a lot about amphetamine use and what we know about amphetamine use and how that causes um, coronary disease and heart disease. Um, and that its structure similarity can give us some insight into this as there's less studies about um, cathinone um, and specifically cot use leading to heart disease. Um, they're mostly associative studies. So um, a case control in Yemen, they had 100 patients with acute MI and 100 control subjects uh, who were age and sex matched. They found that those people had a higher um, cot use, in particular heavy. They didn't define what heavy is. I'm sure going to deeper to the reference would. But um, the folks who had heavy cot use had a 39-fold increase in their risk of acute uh, myocardial infarction. And that there was a correlation between the quantity and the duration of daily use and your risk of, of acute MI. Um, they said of the 100 cases with acute MI, 89% were cot users. Nearly half of those were considered to be heavy quantity users. 90% uh, were heavy or moderate uh, quantity users. And in their study, 27% of the cot users chewed for six or more. 85% um, took, took it for more than three hours a day. Um, and then they, they did a study in a rabbit heart where they gave frequent administration of cot doses and showed multiple areas of ischemia in a heart. Um, and they said 90% of their acute events were after completion or during the during cot use. Um, and then uh, there's more studies that kind of go on to say the same and then ultimately come to the point that they say cot is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. Probably the best study in this group is a multi-center study uh, called the Gulf Race 2. Um, they had about 7,400 patients from six Middle Eastern uh, countries, 1,400 of which were cot users, and 75.5 uh, were from Yemen. Um, and they found that cot users were more likely to have acute uh, myocardial infarction as well as unstable angina, that those people had a higher risk of death, recurrent myocardial ischemia, cardiogenic shock, ventricular arrhythmia, and stroke compared to non-cot users. Um, and again, they say it was an independent risk factor for death on top of um, ischemia and heart failure stroke. Um, and they, they kind of postulate, which I thought was interesting, about the worsened outcomes that cot users experience. Um, they postulate that it happens to the analgesic properties, that you have a delay in presentation, that you have some analgesia, you're not experiencing this chest pain that might be related to your ongoing ischemia, um, that there may be a reduced efficacy of thrombolytic therapy um, due to prothrombotic effect of cathinone and um, increased risk of ischemic cardiomyopathy. They don't, they don't necessarily present any data for those outcomes, but that's kind of their postulation and discussion. Um, and then they, they use some, to further go on to look at um, amphetamine abuse and what it and its subsequent effects of cardiotoxicity and cardiomyopathy, um, which which are not surprising, um, but they describe six cases of sudden sports-related deaths um, that result from amphetamine abuse, and then they talk about um, people who smoke it have increased risk of pulmonary edema and dilated cardiomyopathy, and then that crystal methamphetamines were likely to produce um, diffuse vasospasm as well that leads to cardiogenic shock, myocardial infarction. The death. And then the, the final piece that they present um, is a case study of a 33 year old East African man 
who was chewing cot almost constantly for two to three days, who presented with a myocardial infarction, um, which seems to me is, in this read of this to be the only direct cause that they that they present um, or suggest, and that this person had no coronary risk factors beyond um, smoking. Um, I guess he continued to chew cot daily for two years and three months, um, and ultimately presented with biventricular uh, dysfunction uh, that they call ischemic myopathy. And so they're presenting this, this gentleman as, as having a cot-related cardiomyopathy. Um, and um, then talk about a small study of 50 Yemeni patients who had um, dilated cardiomyopathy, and it seems to have some sort of inherited predisposition that they don't elaborate on as well. Um, it seems that they there's yet to be a causal relationship that's been proven, but certainly an associative relationship as an independent risk factors for um, cardiomyopathy and myocardial ischemia. The, they, do, they do apply a couple of important caveats, though, that, um, that there is a, a heavy association in cot use and tobacco use. So these people have a pretty significant cardiac risk factor, likely because they're, they're tobacco smokers daily. And then um, a lot of cot farming and production actually has large amounts of organophosphate exposure, um, that these are sprayed and then they're essentially putting organophosphates that have been on the leaves in their mouth for hours daily, um, and that this could have uh, an adverse effect on their, on their health as well. Um, so really, kind of the known conclusion is that COT increases catecholamine release through an indirect action. Um, it increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure, and indeed induces uh, coronary vasospasm. It's an association with cardiac toxicity of myocardial ischemia and cardiomyopathy, but no causal link proven yet. Um, and that's the, the story on cot and heart failure. Yep, very good. So not a lot of direct evidence for direct acute heart failure, but more evidence for it causing coronary ischemia or delayed presentation, and people who don't get treated end up with heart failure. But definitely a stimulant, it is sort of the granddaddy of the bath salts, the synthetic cathinones, and so... Those are all clearly banned in the United States, although new novel ones keep getting created uh, that sort of skirt the drug laws, the Controlled Substances Act. So there we have it, four um, interesting uh, herbals, natural substances that are not free of side effects. Um, salvia, currently unregulated except in a couple of sporadic states with an abrupt onset of hallucinations but no clear-cut associations with death. Kratome, the main one we talked about, um, with no clear deaths from its use by itself, but clearly drug interactions and deaths with polypharmacy and other substances of abuse when it's used in that context. Now soon to be Schedule DEA, Schedule 1 within days uh, of uh, this taping at least. And then Kava, currently not scheduled, uh, mostly felt to be a drink like coffee with simulatory effects, but clearly associated perhaps genetically with liver failure. And then finally, Kath with his Schedule 1 and all his cathinone derivatives with stimulatory effects far more severe, and certainly the types that are used in the United States is bath salts associated with uh, psychosis and a variety of other ill effects. So there's a summary for our uh, herbals that are out there and sometimes confused with one another. And uh, so hopefully... Uh, we might see some more research into those in the future, but you know, a lot of it may just be anecdotal case reports, as we've seen in the past, and much of toxicology. So stay tuned.
We'll see you all next time.